Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. So that um, instrument's called an acoustic Doppler velocimeter, and it essentially sits in the water as a little probe that shoots out sound waves that reflect off of particles moving in the water. It tells you how fast they're going at very, very high resolution. Here, it's not going to be super interesting because the flow is pretty uniform, um, but when we have baffles in, we're going to get some really, really interesting flows, maybe some turbulence, maybe some backwatering. So that will give us some really interesting results. No mai harumai, kito tato au huruhuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clark and Canon Tene. It's all about river flow today. Later, Justin Gregory brings us a story about a project hoping to give us a heads up when those flows get too high. A state of emergency will continue for a week in Canterbury's worst hit flood areas. But first, I learn about Stephanie Patchett's research into altering river flow using baffles for a different reason. To help migratory fish make their way past man-made structures that might block their return from the ocean. Here is the neat and really interesting thing about some of Aotearoa's native freshwater fish. They have evolved to use different habitats at different times in their life cycles. Five migratory galaxid species, inanga, koaro, and three types of kokopu, lay their eggs in freshwater, move downstream to the sea as larvae, grow into juvenile fish at sea, but then travel back upstream to grow into adults. It is as they do this migration back upriver that the juveniles are fished as whitebait. But to complete their life cycle and ensure the next generation of fish, some of them need to make it back upstream, to grow to adults and to spawn. In native eels, tuna, and lamprey, piharo, also need access to the sea and back to complete their life cycles. Generation after generation have been dancing this life cycle dance from river to sea and back again. Until we started putting things in the way. Things like culverts. The defining factors is that it doesn't maintain a natural substrate on the bottom. This is University of Canterbury master's student Stephanie Patchett. She is standing alongside me in one of these culverts. It's been built to allow a stream to flow under State Highway 6 on the South Island's west coast, just south of Punakaiki. So we are standing in flowing water in a large rectangular passageway underneath the road. 
You'll hear cars pass overhead as we chat. With things like bridges, you keep all of those cobbles and rocks and stuff, um, and same with arches, but with culverts, you've either got a pipe or a box of one material that drastically alters the, yeah, the natural flow regimes that you'd normally see. So this one that we're standing in is like cement? Yeah, so this would just be called a concrete box culvert. You can get some sediment sort of built up in these, but you lose that diversity of flow. So certain species like faster water, certain species need little resting pools, little eddies. And as you can see here, this is all just one run. There's, there's nothing, nothing of interest here really for fish. So you've just measured out kind of two metre segments and you're going to take measurements to see that the flow is the same all the way along so that yeah. you can kind of characterise it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we want to just build up a picture of what the velocity through this culvert looks like on this longitudinal scale. So today Stephanie is collecting information about the culvert. What it's made of, its shape, its length, its width, and the speed of the flow through it. This is the first step of her research investigating different strategies to make culverts more fish-friendly. What she terms remediation. This whole project is going to be looking at long-term remediation of these culverts. So before we put any, anything in them, we need to get a really good idea of what's there now. What, what are our fish populations downstream versus upstream? What are the flows in the culvert? What are the flows downstream and upstream? And then we do that immediately after we've remediated them. And then again the following year and again the following year to build up a picture of how these remediation attempts may or may not be helping fish move upstream. And when you say remediation, that's putting in the barriers within the culvert to, yeah. s to slow down. The exactly, flow. yeah. To fully adapt the culverts into good fishy passageways, Stephanie has to consider her customers' needs and abilities and be able to cater for them all. Anything sort of above 0.5 metres per second, juvenile migratory fish can swim that fast, but not for that long. So when you think about how long it'll take them to get, you know, a, a 30 mil fish to get all the way up along here. So yeah. the issue is, if there's too fast a flow, they can't swim against, swim against it. that yeah. current. Yeah. And even though their, their burst swimming might be able to exceed the um, opposing water flow, but for long periods of time, and when you have a long culvert, they just get too tired and they end up getting washed back down. Today it's not too bad, yeah. but if it was a bit faster, yeah. there's nowhere for them to break. That, it's literally yeah. you have to sprint. Exactly. Yeah. What no. would be for that? Like yeah. a sprint a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's kind of the idea of these baffles, is just to provide them some little resting areas, kind of diversify the flow a bit, and yeah, hopefully help them move upstream. I had thought that the remediation would be for this kind of big step. Part. It will be, yeah. So that's a, it's two parts. So first we'll put in a ramp. It's called a, a floating fish ramp. And because what we're looking at here is, uh, I mean, what kind of height does that drop off? This is quite a small one for most culverts. I would say it's about 20 centimetres. But some of them, you know, you're getting up to a metre drop. The issue there is that our climbing migratory species can get up to them but not the swimmers so uh, inanga for example wouldn't be able to get up a height like this so if, yeah first step would be a floating fish ramp which will just yeah provide like a, a relatively low slope for them to swim up and then where there's a the velocity is too fast then we install 
baffles which are big blocks or or little shelves that sort of disrupt the incoming flow and provide like little resting pools for them to sort of hop between. It's kind of a cute image. Little floating ramps for fish to slide up and providing spaces for little fishy pit stops on their epic upstream journeys. Stephanie has been given two different designs and her research aims to do some rigorous testing of both of them in these real-world settings. So we've got two types of um, baffles, which are the in-culvert remediation that we're looking at. Um, and so we're just trying to see the different ways that they may or may not work and sort of see if we can get some sort of a comparison. And maybe one will be better for one type of species and another will be better for another, or in different types of culverts maybe, or under different flows. One of them is called the spoiler baffles, and those are big, well, mostly plastic blocks that are sort of evenly spaced out through the culvert and they, they have been tested um, in culverts up to a 2% slope and then there's another type called flexible baffles which have been installed quite a bit and show a lot of promise but they haven't had any sort of standardised or robust testing done on them so that's the other one that we're looking at and we're also going to test them in culverts of different shapes and sizes and slopes and so there are lots of variables to consider and Working in the natural environment is it's very hard to control anything. Um, so that's why we're yeah, trying to do as many culverts as we can and at a, as a longer scale as we can. And why this site? Why this culvert? We need ones where it's a known barrier. So there's obviously a drop here and the water is moving too quickly for a lot of the juvenile native species to get up, um, especially one that's this long. And then it's got to have reasonable habitat upstream for them to want to move through the culvert as well. And so that's what we've got um, Sean and Phoenix over there doing, is they're characterising the habitats, taking substrate measurements, taking velocities, widths, vegetative cover, all the good stuff. Phoenix Hale and Sean Bowie are both from the Department of Conservation, here to assist Stephanie with this research and bringing a huge amount of skill and knowledge from the freshwater fish and habitat side of things. Shan is a freshwater technical advisor for DOC. She fills me in on a bit of the background. There's a lot going on, um, especially in the fish passage space, since the National Environment Standards and the National Policy Statement for Freshwater came in. As well, there's a mandate for each of the regional councils to now come up with action plans um, for fish passage, um, which is fantastic. Because what we've found is that basically... The, the structure design up until sort of more recently has been focused on more flood conveyance and for more mm. sort of more specific purpose. Um, whereas now what we want everyone and what we're sort of encouraging people to do is considering the culverts, but making sure that those culverts remain allowing the stream to be a stream so that we are considering climate change, flood conveyance, fish passage. So we're considering all those things, whereas quite often the previous structures were designed for flood conveyance or for a transport route or something like that. So quite a specific single purpose sort of they thing. They just weren't taking all but, of the different and, and, factors on board. And that's something that we haven't been good at following up as well. So we're all sort of getting to the play. So this project came from the Fish Passage, New Zealand Fish Passage Advisory Group. So that's basically a group of 20 different organisations all involved in fish passage management because a number of years ago we worked out that fish passage can't be managed by one person and one organisation. It's not one person's responsibility or organisation's responsibility, so we needed to do it collaboratively. 
and consistently. So a few years ago um, we then developed the first ever national fish passage um, guidelines and that's what they've used for the implementation of um, and adoption of the national environment standards and the national freshwater policy statement. That's fantastic. They've taken some guidelines basically and get, got them for formal adoption. It's not the whole guidelines, but it's an improvement in the right way. Mm. And one of the things that for the Fish Passage Advisory Group, we wanted to make sure that ecologists and engineers are working together um, because it's not just one person can do it, another person, it's a real combined process. So we think about the fish, they're thinking about the flood conveyance. The, so we're all bringing our best ex expertise together. Um, so that's what this research project is because it's one of the first times recently that we've been able to actually get an engineering student that also then gets to focus on ecology. So the Department mm. of Conservation is supporting this research program from an ecology perspective which is enabling that cross-discipline approach which is pretty new but needed. Collaboration is key to conduct this research because of all the variables Stephanie mentioned earlier. The characteristics of the culverts and how the water flows through them but also the habitat. Because while Stephanie will look at those flow measurements before and after the baffles are put in, the true test of whether the fish passage remediation works is, well, whether fish can get upstream. So we're looking at relative density, so fish per metre squared upstream and downstream. So if we can see what that is before we put them in and see what that is after we've done the remediation and there's an improvement, then that means something's working. And we're also looking at abundance, so what types of species are upstream and downstream. So particularly the juvenile galaxids, which are the juvenile migratory species that... That need to go up the stream. Yeah, exactly. And so today is all about how fast the flow is, what yep. shape the culvert is, what it's made of but also those other variables that might impact the numbers of fish, Absolutely. so the habitat. Yeah, and yeah. you need to, to understand what the habitat's like upstream and downstream, so if, if there are any other influencing factors other than the culvert itself, we need to know about that because that's obviously going to impact fish populations upstream and downstream. So this is only one part of the study on this field site. Mm -hmm. What else will you be doing today? So... Uh, later on tonight we will be doing the actual fishing. We've got some f um, flake nets set up basically at the downstream and the upstream end of our study site and that's to catch any fish that move out of the site or into the site. And then we will do spotlight fishing, so catching those nocturnally active species and then following that we'll do a single pass electric fishing so that sends a small current through the water so the fish get temporarily stunned and you scoop them up. And and we count them all and put them back from where we got them. Yeah. And how many sites are you working on? We've got eight sites on this trip so far. Um, all along the west coast? All along the west coast. So the west coast is great because you have State Highway 6 that runs pretty much straight up the coast, so everything's going to be more or less the same distance from the coast, so the same distance inland that the fish have to travel, because um, that can make quite a difference to numbers. Distance from the sea. Just another variable to think about. So many variables. And a long-term multi-year study too. Shan is quick to point out that this one study won't solve everything. But you have to start somewhere. Steph's 
research is not going to answer all the questions. Mm. Um, it's going to be a starting point to get some real data. There is some already for the, you know, this fish passage remediation. There's been some research done with the floating fish ramps. There's been some research done with the spoiler baffles, um, with Niwa showing some that they are effective at improving passage. There's some stuff with flexible baffles, some before and after research that shows that they help. But we want to make sure that we get some more guidance on how it helps and where it helps so that we can kind of provide some more information to go, OK, in this situation, you use this remediation and that will give you the best end result for the fish. But we want to make sure that we're just getting some standardised data in a standardised way, looking at flows, habitat and fish. So some of the work to date's only looked at fish or only looked at flows. Mm. And we want to make sure that these amazing novel approaches that people are coming up with are actually getting that relevant testing so we're not just putting them in everywhere and we're not really sure that they're going to actually improve because that's the hardest thing is that we need to get into the mindset of like we might not want to do just a quick fix that will only last for x number of years we might actually want to consider the whole of life cost of a structure actually we're better to take that out and put in something that's actually going to survive climate change flood conveyance and all that sort of stuff because of climate change we've got more regular floods you know different situations on all parts of New Zealand as well so yeah, this is totally only starting, but it's an awesome thing to start, and we've got some really good fish passage research um, and some freshwater fish work happening, um, but Steph's not going to be able to answer all the questions. We would love her to be able to, yeah. um, it will be the starting point of, I hope, lots more research. Thanks to Stephanie Patchett, a master's student from the School of Engineering at the University of Canterbury and to Shan Bowie, Freshwater Technical Advisor at the Department of Conservation. Now, as Shan mentioned, one of the issues predicted for our future with a changing climate is increased heavy rainfall and resulting flood events. A team at the National Institute for Water and Atmospheric Research is working on a national river flow forecasting tool that might help give us a heads up on floods. Justin Gregory speaks to one of the scientists working on this project. Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud, and rain. It rains a lot here in New Zealand. New Zealand has huge amount of rainfall compared to other countries. That's Dr Celine Catuin-Gilbert, a hydrological forecasting scientist at Niwa. When she says huge, she means it. Australia has just over 400 millimetres of annual rainfall, the United Kingdom just under 900. Most parts of New Zealand have between 600 and 1600 millimetres. A couple of years ago, we got, in two days, I think, over a 1,000 millimetres of rainfall uh, in the southern Alps that was observed. So it's huge amounts of water that we're getting in New Zealand. Westerly winds scream in from the roaring 40s, hit our high mountain chain, and then rain falls in vast quantities. And often here, too often, rain means floods. In mid-July 2021, Westport residents were forced out of their homes when levels in the Buller River reached their highest in a century. Hundreds are still homeless and a massive clean-up awaits the Buller District and parts of Marlborough following a flooding event a government minister has labelled historic. Westport remained in a state of emergency for the next three weeks and in late August it was West Auckland's turn. Never ever seen anything like it and the stream at the back of our property um, was up about four metres. Insurance claims for damage after that flood have topped $56 million already. Over the last decade or so, insurers have paid out more than $1.1 billion to people whose lives have been affected by flooding. 
Flooding is the most frequent natural disaster in this country, not just because of the volume of rain that hits the ground, but also what that ground is like. Celine again. You can have rainfall that is intercepted by uh, forests, or the rainfall can go to the ground and then it can just run off the ground, especially if you've got high slopes, or it can be infiltrated. Often it will be infiltrated first into the soil until it gets saturated. Or if the rain is really fast, then it can't take the infiltrate uh, the rainfall too fast. So then you have the rain running over the surface. But if it gets infiltrated, it will go into the, the subsurface, into the soil, and then uh, the process is a bit slower getting into the ground. And then it will uh, go into the aquifer, for example, and then it will appear to the river uh, coming from downhill. And so you've got a fast process over hill, a slower process downhill, and this will contribute to the timing of the river getting higher. So often the, the water will rise to a peak, and then after the peak it will go down. Uh, what's really interesting in New Zealand is that in the forest you've got a lot of uh, water that can get really, really quickly over the ground, but also underneath. So you can have something um, called macropores and micropores. Basically in the ground, you've got little tiny gaps where the water can go more or less quickly. And so through roots, cracks in the bedrocks, that can provide faster pathway for the water to go there. And so this is all the processes of how the water gets into uh, the, the river. And so it's extremely complicated to, um, to model. Yep, complicated. You'll hear that word a bit in this story. But modelling that complexity is exactly what Celine and her team are trying to do. The project I'm working on uh, is a national scale uh, river flow forecasting system. It's a proof of concept, so we're doing the research to see whether uh, we can predict river level at national scale for um, engaged rivers. The idea um, is to raise awareness of river levels and potentially extremely high river flows for potentially floods as well. And so the science behind it is to understand the processes behind rainfall runoff, uh, how the rain gets from the atmosphere into the ground, the catchment and the pathways through the ground into the river and predict how it may affect um, the river levels. Quick note, a gauged river is one in which the flow and discharge of water is monitored and measured. In New Zealand, that's mostly done by local government. And as you've heard, since 2019, Celine and her team have been studying rivers that aren't gauged. And that's not easy, because our river system is extensive and, yes, complicated. More than 70 major river systems covering 425,000 kilometres, some slow and braided, some fast and deep, some in natural environments and some entering catchments. And as Celine said, it's not just how much rain falls, but what the landscape is like where it falls, what kind, size and type of river it makes its way to, what the river does from there, and what kind of countryside it passes through on its way to the sea. And of course there's the human factor. So by necessity, this is a co-design project requiring a range of experts. Atmospheric science, hydrological science, forecasting science, how to handle uncertainty, and then also um, social science, decision making, how to communicate the information. And they need a lot of information from a lot of different sources, especially real time flow data, which is held by individual regional authorities. 
one way to improve the system in the future would be to have all that data accessible in real time in one place. Mm. Um, at the moment, we don't have that. And so there's a bit of a delay in getting into the system. And it's the same thing for climate information and rainfall data in particular. Uh, you have a delay in getting all of this in real time. And so it means that we don't have all the best information that we could have. So that's something that um, I guess the project has raised by, you know, doing that proof of concept. What do we need to do to build a system? What they are doing is modelling on a national scale, joining up the pieces and filling in some of the gaps in river monitoring. The whole model is running uh, on small basins across the entire country, and that's about 50 to 60,000 of them running, and only looking at a certain size of rivers. So we're not doing all the small rivers that starts at the headwaters. We're only starting from a river network where you already have one or two rivers kind of connected. So we're still getting quite a very large number of rivers, but um, it's not yet computationally feasible to do everything from the start of the headwaters. So it's quite a lot of um, computations that needs to be done. All those computations are done by Niwa's supercomputer, and when they're combined with 40 years of climate records, the result is an ability to predict relative increases in flow up to 48 hours into the future. This is then rendered as video animations. This project is all about public safety, so anyone, farmers, trampers, fishing fans, will be able to watch those videos, get good information, and then make good decisions. Local government should find it valuable too. The responsibility for flood uh, warning in New Zealand is for the regional and local councils. And so some councils have models for specific rivers, specific catchments. The oversight is very local and uh, they are uh, up to 25% of the rivers that are engaged in New Zealand. And so the gap that this fills is to uh, project some river information in places where we don't have any models already set up or we don't have any monitoring uh, that can tell us what is going on and what is the uh, river level going to do in a few hours. So the idea is to to complement what's already existing or uh, fill a gap of uh, where there is no monitoring. In the last 10 years, for example, we had at least three uh, events that were nationwide and more and more some of the um, floods happen across different regions. So having a bit of a, a national picture can be quite helpful to see what sorts of storm is happening and how it propagates and which river might be impacted most. So this is where it can help the most. The model got a real-world test in May this year. A state of emergency will continue for a week in Canterbury's worst-hit flood areas. This comes after intense rain earlier this week that caused chaos, including forcing many people to evacuate and badly damaging roads. A deep, low-pressure system, a so-called atmospheric river, dumps more than twice some area's monthly rainfall in just three days. By comparing the model's predictions to the real-life outcomes, Celine's team were able to capture some useful insights into the tool's effectiveness and limitations. At the moment, the, the model isn't able to predict locally with great precision and accuracy the amount of river discharge um, in an absolute value, but it's able to to provide information in a relative sense compared to historical simulations. So we don't have precisions yet, but we have more of a, a qualitative information to say this river is worst and it's above a certain threshold of really high flow. Um, and so we could see that uh, the rivers more 
affected were the ones with headwaters at the foothills of the Southern Alps, whereas some other storms, it's the other around, where you only have like the Waimakarari um, and the Rangitaki that have their headwaters in the Alps that are affected, but then the, the other smaller rivers aren't affected. So the model already is able to kind of um, pinpoint the effect of different storms, and that's quite helpful already. The National River Flow Forecasting Tool Project is still at proof-of-concept stage and there's work to do. It needs more money and it needs more time. But Dr Celine Catawain-Gilbert has a plan for the next stage. We've had a couple of years of forecast and we've been looking at how well it performs uh, or how badly it performs in some places. So um, we already know that uh, there are places where it's doing quite well and some other places uh, like very dry catchment or very wet catchment, it might be over forecasting. The next steps would be to kind of make some improvement to the model, refine our assumptions. Something else that we're working towards is uh, like a website that me, might be able to show you what you can't see with the videos. The, the videos that we have, you can see what's happening over time. It's a very um, breadth type of information. With a website, we're hoping you can do something similar, but you can zoom in and more interactively see what might be happening. It would still be at the level of relative flow value, above normal, below normal, and very high. You can zoom in and click, and then you can see what we call a hydrograph, which is basically a graph showing this is time, what might the forecast look like, and that might be a bit more helpful to see when uh, a peak might occur and when it might start receding and that sort of information for all the rivers that we have. And then the question is, well, how do we go from here? And that's not a question I can answer. Um, But in terms of the research, uh, there's definitely a lot more uh, to do in the future. While you're waiting, if you're worried about your nearby river, you can check weather sites like NIWA or MetService. You could go to local government websites or you could always listen to your radio. Thanks, Justin. That was Justin Gregory speaking with Dr. Celine Katowin Gilbert, a hydrological forecasting scientist at NIWA, Taihiro Nukurangi. This episode was produced by Justin Gregory and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. Thanks to Liz Garten for making this episode better with some editing suggestions. Tim Watkin is executive producer of Podcasts and Series. You can follow Our Changing World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And you can check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'll share some pictures and links related to these stories. You'll also be able to listen to our extensive back catalogue of episodes there, including many others on rivers and native fish. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. New RNZ podcasts are being made all the time. I recommend that you keep your eye out for one that's being launched really soon. One that I'm pretty excited about. Called Sci-Fi Sci-Fact, scientists from the McDiamond Institute take an idea from popular science fiction and see how it stands up to scientific scrutiny. As ever... Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki.